Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I'm really excited about this one. I love the funny people, and this is legitimately one of the funniest people in the universe in at least the languages that I understand. There may be some other comedians in other places that I this don't understand. This is un- tough because you tell me not to be funny in this interview, and then you're like, this is one of the funniest guys. And uh, then people are going to listen. They're going to be like, this guy fucking sucks. If they're familiar with the way I interview, I can go dark and deep and do awkward things with comedians. I have a All history right. of interviewing comedians poorly, but I believe you're going to help me with that. <laughs> because I think what you sculpt and the way you do it, and I should tell the audience, it's Sam Morrell, and he is uh, he's internationally someone who performs uh, nationally, internationally, and is very well known as a funny person. So you come in here with that expectation. If you say so. And I don't know how I would have, uh, how would I describe your wit to a stranger? I don't know if it's uh, sardonic. I don't know how I would describe it exactly. What's well, the correct word? I can't, I, you can't ask me to describe myself. That's like poison for a comedian, you know? It's like, that's for other people to say. Okay, so your humor then, the reason I wanted to do this with you is because, and you've got a Netflix special, same time tomorrow that people should check out if they want to understand your work a little bit better but uh have you explored where the roots of your comedy come from you come from a family of both ivy league lawyers but a bunch of artists too all around your family yeah a little bit of everything uh blended family i i think you know you just uh i was the youngest in a blended family so i think you you're like you make sure you're heard still i went from like having all my mom's attention to like okay now it's shared attention with my new stepdad who who became my dad i think a lot of it stems from like i want to be heard i heard Chappelle once say that the youngest sibling is always a tension breaker and i think that's true because you can kind of say anything as the youngest sibling and uh yeah i was they my older siblings are so intelligent that i was like well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be one of that one of those you know so that they set the bar so high that i was kind of like all right i'm out for whatever they're doing so i gotta find my own lane and uh you know, it was... Was there pressure to have, like, a more conventional path? Like, that's a... I think you do the hardest thing, okay? A person in front of a microphone with only their talent, having to make a living with the expectation of funny, I think it's the hardest thing in entertainment. It is, and it is. I mean, I I think my style, I saw early on at open mics, I was doing a lot of one-liners and short jokes, so I think at mics, those were tough because... If, if you're doing like a story, the punchlines weren't as obvious, so you can kind of get away with talking over them if you weren't doing well. But if I'm bombing, I'm just like, but I'm bum, nothing, you know? So you've but, called that fun. 
I've seen you call that fun. Well, sometimes what? it's fun. When you're more confident, it's fun. But when you're still finding your footing, you're like, this fucking sucks. And uh, I mean, you saw me at a venue. You told me Fontainebleau in Miami where I'm like, it was like a banquet hall. Like, not a good booking. It was a weird. I saw you recently at the Fontainebleau yeah. and it was a banquet hall with like a few hundred people. I'm like, I felt like I was watching a treasure because I'm like, this person is so much better than this venue. This I, let, I let them know that. <laughs> I mentioned that. I was like. You, I, I shouldn't be here. No, it was uh, that was uh, a tough room. I, 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 it's just tough when the when the ceilings are high and the walls. There's nowhere for the laughs to come back, so that you feel like every joke you're starting at zero. So those are tough. Uh, and you know, Miami crowds are tough to begin with. They're just tough. They're, they're not. They don't care. There's like you play like Fort Lauderdale or Orlando or Tampa. They're like working class people, and they're kind of they're gonna listen. Miami, they show up thirty minutes late. They don't give a shit. They're like a butt influencer. They're not like they're not like listen. They're like I don't connect to this. I don't care. So <laughs> you, uh, when I say that you've described it as fun, and it makes sense that you would you would have the confidence now to see it as fun. Norm Macdonald played with that all the time. But man, that confidence is hard earned. Uh, ba uh, Basim Youssef was on with us recently, and he described it as constantly dying. That it's the feeling of constantly dying. I don't know how you get to fun, but my God, the relief and the confidence in you knowing, no, I'm good at this. Like, I'm well, if I'm bombing now, I'm not going to be bombing in five minutes. It, it takes time when you when you building a new hour like my hour right now is ready to tape. I'm I'm in a good place with it. I could tape this. I'm going to tape in like a month and a half, but. Uh, yeah, when you're building, you don't have that confidence. I mean, that's the thing is if you keep writing a new hour, you have to keep starting from scratch and you don't, you don't know they're funny out of the gate. So if you see a comic that's like too confident, you're kind of like, you almost don't trust him. You're kind of like, how much do you write? You know, if you know, this is killer. I, I almost don't trust it. Oh, wow. So your process is to doubt, to doubt, to doubt, to sculpt, to sculpt, to sculpt, to make it so meticulous. And I don't think people know this about people who are as expert as you. You must be obsessive compulsive about how you're sculpting that, obsessed with that to the detriment of like other balances in your life because you have to sculpt that. You sound like my mom right now. Am I wrong? Uh, is there other stuff you have, Sam? Yeah. No, I... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you have to, it's like anything if you care about, like, I, I mean, I would compare it to, to anything if you're making a movie or if you're writing a song, like, I heard Leonard Cohen say, hallelujah, took him five years, you know, like, I'm not comparing one of my jokes about masturbating to hallelujah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you gotta hone a joke, you gotta, you gotta make it, uh, you gotta, I mean, Seinfeld always says he's like never done with a joke, which I'm like, all right, at some point you gotta be done, I think. You gotta, I have to move on. It's like, they're almost like kids. You have to like send them off to college. You're like, you're done, you're out. But uh, I, yeah, I'm done with a joke at a certain point, but it is tough when you tape a special. I feel like this inevitably happens to comedians. You tape a special, you're done with that material, but then you're touring and you have to do some of the old jokes just to survive. You can't do all of New 45 quite yet. And uh, and you're like, fuck, I came up with a good new line. And it's already taped. So that it's just going to happen. The art of it. Can you sort of explain to the audience how meticulous you are and how much you care about this as craft? I have a hard time referring to myself as an artist. I don't like, I think I'm an entertainer. You know, I don't, I think what, the word the arts it just feels like pretentious to me and i feel like that's something we have to rebel against as comedians because 
uh, once you're like, I'm a fucking artist. I'm like, dude, I got good at this performing in like chicken wing. Uh, serving comedy clubs and strip malls. I, I have a hard time, like... Oh, but this underestimates how brave it is as a career choice. Like, okay, fine, you don't have to drape it in all of that. Like, And your comedy, man, you feel very everyman to me, but it's artful. It's indisputably artful, your delivery and how you're doing it. You have a very unique style that is all your own, and it's not, it's not just because you were funny as a kid. I, I think this is my problem with award shows right now, is that, like, I feel like so many of these celebrities... All they do is get showered with like statues and nominations and gift bags and all this shit, and they can't take a joke about themselves. Meanwhile, I feel like comedians, you have to stay humble because if you're writing, you you will bomb. That's just part of the process. So uh, I think that's why most comedians you meet will be pretty normal. I mean, you just can't really get a big head if you're writing, I don't think. Do you mistrust praise? Like will it, it will will it make you less hungry to just... sometimes yeah I think I think you do well with a chip on your shoulder I look I'm a big Knicks fan I see Jalen Brunson got left out of the starting five for the All Star game and and I'm mad for him because I root for that guy to succeed I love the team but I think this type of team represents New York because they really thrive with a chip on their shoulder I, I think good defensive teams always do and you need good defense to win. And, uh, yeah, I think if I'm, like, out of a breakup or something and I'm like, fuck, all I can do is throw myself into comedy. When you're fueled by something or, you know, when you don't get something, say, like, Netflix doesn't make an offer for your next special or say, you know, uh, back in the day, uh, I know I did a YouTube special and no one, it was on YouTube, not by choice. It was like, no one wants to buy this special. I think it's my best special and it's on YouTube. And, uh... You still think it's your best special? Probably. This new hour is pretty good. But that one was just so hungry. I was so... Uh, I was pretty angry at that point. I remember, <laughs> I remember Bill Burr once said to me, he's like, don't become that guy. He's like, it stinks like a fish and it follows you everywhere. And I was like, that's true. I was just, I was just pissed because I was like... It's one of the things where you're like... Uh, you're killing on the road. You're like... You're, and you're like, what the fuck do I have to do? I came from the era where, like, you know, I'm very fortunate. I feel like comedy's in a boom right now. But when I started, it wasn't that way. And um, I came from the era when the the goal was to get a Comedy Central special. And then slowly I watched Comedy Central kind of dissolve. So, you, you know, you, you get the special. You work hard for it. You hone these jokes for two years or so or however many years on the road. In strip malls that are papered with free tickets with people that aren't half, you know, they're half listening sometimes. They have no investment in the show. They're not listening. And then uh, you get the special. You're like, oh, my God, I got Amy Schumer produced my first one with my first hour with them. And that, that was like a big deal that she wanted. She did my friend Mark Norman and, and Rachel Feinstein's as well. And it was like, you know, it's a big deal for us. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like, watch my special at 11 p.m. on Friday on Comedy Central. And even then people were like, what? Like, what is this, 1992? No, that's not how we consume content. I, I have seen you sound like an old head a bit while you're evolving because the entire landscape has changed. Social media has made that audience. It's not strip balls anymore. You guys all have your own brands and, you know, Rogan's, uh, you know, a comedy empire who can just birth comedians because you have your own power now and you've seen it all change. You've lived it. You've lived enough of it to be awed in the presence of David Letterman as any comedian should be. Yeah. But also to see the whole industry change where, uh, 
you know, Bert Kreischer can take off his shirt and suddenly sell out stadiums. <laughs> well, he's doing more than tell, you know, taking his shirt off. No, I, I don't mean that. But, as, I don't mean that but, as insult. But yeah, uh, you know, I uh, yeah, I always wanted to get on Letterman. I was like, man, I never got on Letterman. Then I got on his Netflix show. Like that's how much the industry has changed, you know. So uh, yet, yeah, social media is really the new one. Is you look at social media and you're like, okay. You post your jokes on social media, they get shared. The new problem comedians are going to have is uh, social media and censorship because now the rules are changed. They, they keep bringing the goalpost in. A joke that wouldn't have been offensive to them three or four years ago is now they're like, you've been, uh, you're on timeout on Instagram or something. And you're like, well, this is how I conducted my business. So you have to keep staying ahead of the curve because... Uh, all it is, it's all about ad sales now. And it's becoming more like Instagram felt like the Wild West a few years ago. And now it's like NBC or something where you're like, oh, I can't curse. It's quite an obstacle course. Like, how do you navigate it? Because you are one of the things that people might not understand about comedians is you have to go around the, the globe and go make your money bar to bar. And there's like not health insurance and stuff yeah. like that. It, there are a small group of people brave enough to do it and a, a smaller group of people who do it successfully and make money off of it. And now you're navigating as your business and your brand something that you're an old head about. I don't know how sophisticated you are with YouTube algorithms. Yeah, I mean, the business changed when I was uh, doing comedy, as it always changes, you know? I mean, look, I think about, like, Lucille Ball. She was a radio star. Then she was a TV star. Like, okay, well, the business is always evolving. Before that, it was silent pictures. Then it was, you know, yeah. black and white pictures. Then it was, you know, you get movies in, in color. You get vertigo, whatever, you know, comes out. But uh, <laughs> so the, the business is always changing. Entertainment's always changing. But uh, this one, when I started... Everyone was like, you got to go to the Montreal Comedy Festival. That will change your life. Because in the 90s, these comics were getting, you know, six, seven-figure deals for sitcoms. And half the time, they wouldn't even get made. They'd call them holding deals. So you're like, oh, you just, I just can't go. I, NBC gave me one. I can't go to CBS. Okay, that's a holding deal. So you, you're getting that much money to just not make a show half the time. Right. By the time I went to Montreal, it was like... I got an agent, I think, and it wasn't even like a good agency. They were like, we'll sign you. I'm like, that's that's all I get. <laughs> I was, everyone was talking it up. and uh, You didn't know that, right? You thought you oh. thought all of this, you thought there was something bigger out well, there or look, that success looked different? No, I just didn't know it would be such a, a slow climb. I mean, you don't, and look, some people do burst overnight now with, with social media, even if they're working for a while, but I think... Uh, yeah, I go to Montreal. I think the guy who signed me, he was like the big agent at, at the agency at the time. He was like, I'm I'm kind of the guy here. And I mean, to show you how invested they were in me, he left for another agency. I didn't even get an email. <laughs> so I just signed with them. And I was like, oh, he's like, oh, he doesn't work here anymore. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess Ouch. I'm not important. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was your rep. And and doesn't even give you a heads up because what you they, weren't a moneymaker or enough of a moneymaker? Sure, absolutely. I mean, what they do when they try to sign you is like there's like the closer he's like the big dog at the agency and he comes in like this is who i rep and i'm like you you're supposed to be like oh my god but you know as you get older you're like well are you gonna pay attention to me you know what i mean so uh yeah i definitely had i mean look i had managers over the year and managers don't do anything really anymore there's a couple good managers i guess but they take 10 percent of what you're doing on the road and they have nothing to do with it the agents earn their money they're they're booking you on the road but a manager you're kind of like 
I don't even know why I'm why I'm cutting a check. And you realize that after you miss enough connect flights and there's enough delays and you're like, well, you didn't have any sweat in this game, you know? Well, I'm wondering when you look at other comedians, uh, let's just say, and I, I really don't mean, I know Burt Kreischer um, managed uh, masterfully the social media landscape to help build his following. So this I didn't mean it as insult. No, I know, I know. Uh, but do you look at some comedians now who don't have to grind the way you do because there is a shortcut to your own audience? No, because you, you pay now or you pay later. If you pop now, what Louis used to always say to me was like, you don't want this because you come back down here. You want this. You know, and uh, and then you realize whenever comics tell you what you, they're always just talking about their own career. Like Louis grinded in the clubs for years, so they're explaining their own career to you. But uh, but I think he's right. I think I think ultimately, hopefully, it lasts longer if if it's a longer road because people have kind of grown with you and they and they they feel more of a loyalty to you. Um, yeah, I think you know, you pay now, you pay later. Do 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 A lot has changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Man, we was just watching Celtics versus Nuggets last night, and the catalyst to the party, the vibe, the vibe changer, the mood increaser, was the Miller Lite cooler in the middle of the living room. Salute to Miller Lite, man. And when you're out having a great time, oh my goodness, you want to reach for a beer that's reliable. And I cannot name, think of, or even ponder a more reliable beer than Miller Lite. Can you dig it? Times change, but you can always enjoy the great taste of Miller Lite. Hmm. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Yiddick! The lifestyle seems to me, I don't know what is true about your personal life, I've heard you make fun of relationships on stage, but the lifestyle seems like it would be really hard to have real love with anyone who's not just another comedian. Well, yeah, I've done that before. Uh, it's a mistake, I think, usually, to date within your own field but like how many people just date within their own field like how many sportscasters date sportscasters how many actors date actors how many lawyers date lawyers psychiatrists date psychiatrists it's just easier you, there's an understanding right um i think it probably is going to make your life harder because one of them is going to resent the other one in some way especially if you're trying to build a, a life because you can't you can't both be touring if you know you're gonna have kids and stuff but uh and it, and i will say as someone who's done it before it's just stressful all the times you're like well we can meet in this city you know it's like it's it's not ideal it, but it seems just generally lonely and not conducive even though maybe some people think the comedian's lifestyle uh, lifestyle is wonderful touring the world telling jokes what's not great about that but i've been enough in enough green rooms in a dirty bar that <laughs> you know that has 300 people in it who have just left and now you're on the road somewhere in some city you don't know at 1 a.m looking to buy french fries somewhere <laughs> um yeah it it depends on the city, I guess. It depends on where you're at in your life. Like, it gets hard more for me when I just get run down. But, uh, you know, I, I try to stay healthier than I did 
a few years ago on the road because your body just doesn't hold up, you know? Uh, so I, I do feel like, yeah, it's not... My mom used to warn me when I was in my early 20s on the road and she'd be like, this isn't going to make for a good life. And I'm like, well, what else am I going to do at this point? I'm in, I'm in, I'm in a freaking... I'm in a La Quinta in Indianapolis. Like, it's kind of... I'm all in. I'm doing a club called Crackers. That was the name of the club. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, and Well, that must not have felt very good in terms of support. That must have felt... Like, here you are. Walk me through this part of it, okay? Yeah. Ivy League-educated siblings. Yeah. You're the young one. Yeah. Uh, your mother was... Uh, she had an artistic streak, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So she should support the she arts. Does. Look, she does... She likes what I do. I think on some level she wishes I was more of like a... She's like, why don't you do like shouts and murmurs in the New Yorker? I'm like... I don't fucking like I'm, I did Conan last week. That's not enough. You know, it's like stuff like that. <laughs> well, I'm like, I, she wants you to write intellectual comedy for yeah. the New Yorker. Oh, yeah. I remember my parents <laughs> would be impressed by shit that had nothing to like. I remember what would impress my dad was uh, he was like, you got written up in the New York Times. And I looked it up and it was like not a very positive spin on my comedy. And I was like, yeah, they didn't. That wasn't very nice what they wrote. And he was like, but it's the Times, you know, he, they were just happy I was in the New York Times. But are they not understanding where their son connects with his audience? Because uh, you you can go high and low. Like, I, I, why, how are they not understanding how smart you actually are about what you've built? I just think like, look, your parents aren't going to understand if you're if you're being true to yourself i mean like i always think about my favorite comics i'm like would their mom like their stuff i don't know like it's well i do understand why parents would not understand that you're majoring in comedy like yeah. i didn't even know you could major in college in comedy oh, yeah, i, I made didn't know that up i was just lazy i didn't want to do anything so i was like uh I was in a school at NYU where they were like, you can create your own major. I was like, cool. And then I just had an advisor kind of guide it. I just didn't want to do anything but comedy. I was out every night doing stand-up. I was handing out flyers on the street. Uh, not with a lot of enthusiasm. I wasn't I wasn't doing it. Uh, I wasn't good at getting people in the door, but they would sometimes pay you or just give you stage time to do that. So I was like, oh, I would just do that. And... Uh, Man, uh, yeah, I remember you would bomb. The worst of it was you would hand out flyers. I would do it on this place a lot on 108th Street, uh, the the Underground Lounge, and I would hand out flyers and be like, "Oh, it's a hot lineup tonight. This guy's on." I'd say my name. They'd be like, "Oh, okay," and then uh, they'd be in the crowd. It'd be like four people, and they just bring me up, and they'd be like, "What the that guy, <laughs> the ticket guy? That's who." <laughs> They just and I bomb because they'd be like mad. They're like, this guy ripped us off. I'm like, how else am I going to get a crowd? I don't know. I can't imagine you doing something like that enthusiastically, having the confidence at that stage in your life to do something like that confidently. Oh, it was a winter. I was like an old soul. I would be like downing a, a flask of like Jim Beam. I was like, I was like, oh fuck this winter. You know, I'm like comedy. No, I sucked at it. I was terrible. So you weren't much of a salesman, but you were out there believing very much that that was the path for you. I would do it because it would give me, they'd give me stage time. So it was like the required, uh, they're like, you got to do at least two hours to get stage time. And to me, it was better than an open mic because open mics were just all comedians. So they weren't listening. They were just focusing on their own set. Um, I would do the open mics too, but I just prefer, I would rather do the flyers because I, I just wanted a, a quality crowd. Also early on, you, you'd have to bring people to a show. You'd bring paying customers. And then later on, you're like, well, you're doing the same thing when you're a headliner. It's just... They're actually going to see a better show now, but, you know, 
What can you tell us about what the struggle was like, like the details, how long it lasted, where, where and when you felt like, okay, now this isn't just a dream. I'm going to actually be able to do this. Well, it just, it gets better every year if, if you're on the right track. And I think, you know, a lot of people start in, uh, you know, maybe they'll start in Chicago or, you know, New Orleans or wherever, and they they become kind of a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And then, not that I'm not calling Chicago a small pond. It's a good comedy scene there. But, like, you know, then they move to New York, and it's, uh, they kind of have to start over a little. But people are like, oh, I heard this guy's good. Like, I remember when Hannibal Burris came to New York from Chicago. He kind of had some heat already. People were like, oh, look out for this guy, you know, and, uh, that, and that's one way to do it. I started in New York, so people just saw me when I sucked. Like, people only in New York saw Hannibal when he was already good. Uh, but there were very few people who were funny out of the gate. Like, I had a few jokes that worked out of the gate, but I wasn't good yet. But then each year, what for me took it to the next level was I won this comp. I would win comedy competitions because I had short jokes. So you would do all these weird competitions. I remember we did one it was called March Madness and it was like bracket style. So it's comedian versus comedian, 64 slots, starts with one minute sets, then two minute, then four, then, you know, you can move on. And I would do really well in those because uh, my jokes were short. So I would just kill, and other, some comics would be like, well, I'm a storyteller, I can't kill in one minute. So I would knock that guy out, you know? I remember, I think my opener was, I was like, man, this is like eight mile for Jews. That was my opener. And that would kill. I was like, all right, I'm back. Uh, and then, uh yeah it was i would do well in those and the and the prize was uh you'd get work at the club so like okay now i'm past at the clubs or even if you didn't really win they'd be like this guy's funny we should work him caroline's was really good to me they're, they're no longer there but that was a, a legendary new york club uh caroline's this club comics which closed with you know owing a lot of money to a lot of comedians i think but uh yeah i think i came in second at Caroline's at a 64. I lost to Dan Soder. If you know Dan Soder, he's hilarious, yeah, yeah. great comic. And then uh, in comics, I I won. I beat Mike Lawrence, uh, who Mike is great. My, I'm creating a show with Mike Lawrence. So it's like you stay in touch with it. You know these people forever. It's kind of crazy. But uh, I love Mike's mind. He's brilliant. But, uh, you know, uh, doing that, you're, the clubs are like, we're going to work you. And I remember... <laughs> at the time they're like okay you can have any weekend you want at the club and i was like i want to open for greg giraldo he was one of my favorite comics and they were like he's booked and then they were like you can have jim florentine i was like oh okay cool and i opened that was my first weekend ever with jim florentine he was so fucking cool he was such a nice guy and um included me in like every conversation like i think Attell is new but i did pretty well and they were like all right we're gonna stop we're gonna start using you you start to do the other clubs i do like comic strip and they would do a thing called late night. So you go on after the regular show. So say it's an 8 p.m. show, you can show up at like 10.30. And, uh, you know, it'd be me and a bunch of my friends. We're like, we're not past for the regular show yet, but we can do late night. So like, all right, the crowd's tired. It's two and a half hours into a show. They're not a hot, my audition there was maybe the worst setup ever of my career. Uh, I mean, you remember waiting on lines and stuff for this, but I do an audition at Comic Strip Okay, 8.30 show, you draw like a lottery number, six audition spots. I land six out of six. I'm like, fuck, I'm going on like almost three hours into the show. This is going to be bad. I go on. I'm waiting to go on. The guy before me, say there's 80 people in the room, which is like 
decent at the time. Like, I can kill for 80 people. He is a complete nervous breakdown before me. Some of these guys were like, guys, they had no, no. they had no reason to be there. So he goes up and on stage, he goes, what am I doing? I'm fucking bombing. This is horrible. And people just start leaving. They're like, I'm not watching this. And I'm like, I'm like, like, oh my God, I waited like months for this audition and I'm going to. That's your, that's your opener. I go on. There's 12 people left after there were 80. Oh no. And I I go on and I just had, I addressed it and that kind of got a laugh. And I just, I'm like, just, I got 12 people. Let's try to kill for 12 people. It's whatever, but I, the fact that I didn't give up and I kind of worked, I worked them and stuff. When the person before you had a nervous breakdown it, on stage. I was so angry. I was like, how is this happening? But then you're like, get the anger out of your head. Just try to be present. And, and like your job is to make them laugh. And the owner of the club who's passed away since Richie Tinkin was like, you know, he had like a raspy voice. He had, I think he had some sort of cancer from, from smoking cigarettes his whole life. And he goes, uh, kid, you know. You didn't give up. I'm, I'm going to pass you. But that was passed for late night. I wasn't passed for the regular thing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the late night crowds were awful. I think, like, like the people were drunk and awful at that point. They would, they would, you know, they'd heckle you. They'd talk to you. like, I got five minutes. And then you get to a point where you're like, I'm killing. I'm doing new stuff every night. And then, finally, they didn't pass me. The first club that really works you, they don't, re- they don't recognize you until someone else does it's almost like it's almost like a girl at a bar where you're like she's like yeah whatever and then some other girl starts talking and she's like oh maybe this guy's all right you know they didn't they didn't see that i was funny yet and they did it to another comic i started with joe mackie with great jokes and they didn't really show us any love until you know joe did late night with jimmy fallon they were like oh maybe he's funny i'm like we've been funny but it, it took other people validating us for you to give us you know any spots so Caroline's was the first to really take care of me. And I, I stayed away from the comedy cellar because they were like, to me, the the best club. And I didn't want them. I didn't want them to see me until I was really strong. And, and you know, I, so I, I, I told you I was good at these competitions. I, I was getting by with like a shitty living, just like selling merch on the road, doing whatever. What took it over was I do this festival in Atlanta called Laughing Skull. And it was like, I think like 600 applicants. Again, it's like 60 something people. They choose from the videos. I'm there. They're like, winner gets whatever. But the big prize was like, you get a year of road work. You, We will put you on the road for a year through clubs and we'll make sure they book you. We're basically going to pay for your training. Like this is going to be, you a year on the road is going to be the college education that you didn't want when you were making up comedy as a major. And I think I was 23 or something. It was a big deal. So I, where it got hard was you have to do different material in each round. So first round I do, they're like top two, move on. I came in second. I was like, I thought I had the best set, but I was like, all right, second, I move on, whatever. Second round, uh, I kill, I do well. And I'm like, okay, I'm in the, I'm in the championship. It's like, I don't know, eight comics. And I'm like, I gotta, all right, this is, this is big. This should be good. I, uh, I kill. I have a really good set in the finals, new material. I'm, I'm like, I don't know if I even have 30 minutes at this point, whatever I had to do. But um, that was good, you know, but I, I, I win the thing. And I, at the time, remember, like, man, a couple other comics had really good sets. Like Ari Shafir was in it. He had a really good set. Uh, Tom Simmons, I think, maybe had the set of the night, but they gave it to me. And I was in my head, I was like, I don't know if I deserve this, but I'll fucking take it. <laughs> and uh, they set me up to their credit. They were like, if a club didn't book me, they were like, you got to book him. And, man, some of the clubs, like, I was not a headliner yet so i was not doing great but 
I was young enough that I think the audience thought it was kind of funny, even if I wasn't killer. Like they were like, maybe they were a little older and they're like, well, I have a kid his age. And it's like, and he's, he's trying, he's, he's trying and he's, and he had, I had something, I had some stuff, but I remember I did this club in Kirkland, Washington and uh, called laughs. And I had like 43 minutes. I was like, I can do like 43 minutes. I wrote out the set, like I do 45, but I can bullshit my way to 45. And and then I mean, if I do 45, I probably get to like 48. Let's try some topical stuff. Start trying to write like new stuff. Some crowd interaction. Do a little crowd work. Yeah, that's where it started kind of. But I remember the first night the owner was like, what the fuck was that? And I was like, I did well in my head. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, we're a family club. And I was like, Dude, I, in my head, I'm like, I can't remove any jokes. I need all these jokes to get by. But I was like, which joke was it? And he was just like, we're a family club. And I, I was like, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I couldn't change a joke. So I just did the same set the whole weekend. And by the end, he was like, man, you you really, you, you struggled in the first night. But by the end of the weekend, you really pulled it together. And I'm like, I came to the conclusion, I don't think this guy watched one set. I think he was just pissed drunk in the back. <laughs> <laughs> was like, well, this, this is your audience. These are some of the subjective things that come with comedy. Your boss yeah. is like, ultimately, the reason you win is because laughter has, it's a meritocracy, right? You either get the laughs or you don't. And you're good at getting the laughs. You have been for a long time. But when we talk about the struggle and you say, I was barely making a living, what does that look like practically? Because you're chasing your dream and you're, you you think you're right and you don't want to doubt that this is the thing you want to do. But for how many years are you laboring under the weight of this might not actually be a career? I think you just have to be delusional, honestly. I think you like if, if you ever think there's going to be a plan B or kind of like if it's just like a regular, you know, part time thing, you're doing fine. But like if you're doing like a full thing then yeah that could that could be hard for you i think i think if you're not giving it if you're not putting yourself in a position where you're, i think it was someone who forgot what comedian was but like you can't have a real safety net so what, what was i i had like three roommates and it was like uh what helped me was going on the road hard and just dude the worst was you're not getting paid that much on the road at first so i would sell merch and it was the corniest merch and it was shame it was I, I was embarrassed doing it but I had a t-shirt, I had a joke about first time I met my biological father, like it was at a family style restaurant and the joke was like, man, they should make up, they should make broken family style restaurants where you walk in and you're like, where's the waiter? And you're like, I think he abandoned us. And you know, it was like, a, it was a, like a whole bit, but I sold t-shirts that said Sam's broken family style restaurant. And the best part was having to pitch that shirt at the end of a show when, uh, when the joke didn't work. You know, <laughs> right when you get your, would, yes, you're selling merch for something that didn't land and you didn't always hit. But I just like that joke, and I, mean, I thought the shirt was funny. It's and, a funny shirt, and and uh, yeah, it was like Sam's Broken Family Style Restaurant. It was a plate with like a fish uh, skeleton <laughs> on it, and uh, and I remember. I remember being like, well, that joke didn't hit, but I've got t-shirts to that joke. And they'd be like, what? We don't, we didn't like the bit, but, uh, yeah, that was, uh, it's extra, it's extra humiliating to not have them laugh at the joke. And then to be your personality type, who's not going to be enthusiastic about being there with flyers or necessarily selling the pieces of your soul that can I sell you this shirt? Cause I need the money and the joke didn't work, but I think it's a funny shirt, but now I have to sell it to you, and this is a transaction that doesn't feel pure. It was tough, and also it was like before the days of Venmo where people were just drunk, like, fuck it, I'll give you money. Like, cash was more difficult. So uh, what, what changed it, like, at that point, like, right after I won Laughing Skull, uh, I opened for Gary Goldman in Baltimore at a club called Magoobies, and uh, 
Gary's still my friend. I mean, Gary's a great guy, great comic. And he, I was a little nervous to open for him because I thought he was like very much like, uh, like, I mean, you say I'm meticulous. Gary is like, I've never seen a dude just like dissect stuff. He's like, you know, guys like Gary or Jim Gaffigan can just stretch a bit that you, in my mind would probably, for me, it'd be like a one minute bit for them. It's like an eight minute bit and it's killing all the way. So I was pumped to work with him. And, uh, first show Gary was like, I'm wrecking you with the comedy seller. You're going to be my first wreck. And I didn't know him. So I was like, in my head, I was like awesome. But I was also like, he's not going to do it. But that's, that's nice that he even said that, but he did it like the next week <laughs> he was like, Hey, can you be at the cellar? And I was terrified of that because even though I was doing well, that's the big uh, leagues. Yeah, and they they knew I was scared. I still remember going in there and Keith Robinson, who's like one of the funniest people. He's I, I'm in there and Keith just I'm at the table with all like the big shot celery. It was like Norton, Jim Norton. You're Keith odd. Robinson. You're odd and scared and nervous. And I just know they can all see through bullshit, and they're all uh, they're all snipers. I mean, they're like the tough crowd guys. They're the old school. Like anyone who loves comedy knows Patrice and Quinn and Norton and that era savvy veterans who will see your insecurity sniff it and now we're going to cut you with samurai swords it's, it's the old school of comedy it's like what they everyone it's funny when they say comics are soft i'm like i got the tail end of it i didn't get it really i didn't know patrice he had passed on before i worked there what do you mean comics are soft i know better than to ever argue with a comic in these settings because a comic always is equipped with the tools to surgically eviscerate anyone he's arguing with or or she's arguing with because they've been doing it since childhood well, it's a weapon but we all are compared to that generation where like they would literally have to they would be have to come armed to the table it was like the old west or something <laughs> they were like you know <laughs> put their guns on the put old dusty guns on the oh, table it's like tombstone or something they were crazy <laughs> but uh you know I, I remember sitting down and Keith was like, look how scared he is. And everyone's <laughs> laughing at me and I'm like, oh man, I'm, and I'm, and I'm nervous. I'm like, Welcome, oh man, kid. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, but, uh, I remember they were trying to put me on after a guy who was like a guitar act. And I was like, fuck my auditions like midnight after a guitar act. I don't want to, I don't want to go on after this guy. Not cause I don't think he's funny, but it's just like a different energy. And I just, and now I don't care, obviously, but when you're trying to audition, you want everything to be for, perfect. For years, you're caring about this. You have to. You must. In order, like this, The struggle, I'd love to know how you got good at failure, because I've never figured out how to treat failure as learning. I'd like to. Well, I think, I don't know if you ever, I mean, I still get upset when I feel like I had a bad set. We did a club a couple weeks ago. You know, last year was a theater tour for us. It was, was really cool. But then, you know, I'm back in clubs for a couple months to try to tighten stuff up before I tape a special. And we did a club a couple weeks ago where the acoustics were terrible. So it just felt like, it was kind of like, felt like the Fontainebleau where it was, I couldn't, I either had to speed up my delivery to the point that it was not natural and uncomfortable, or I would have to start at zero every joke because the laughs were just gone. So it was like, I'm, it just feels like I'm not giving them a good show. So I was mad every night after the show. I was it, pretty. It upset. feels like I saw you at the Fountain Blue, and what I'm telling you, you sound, you seem like since I mentioned it to you a couple of times now, and you seem like you're almost ashamed that that's the show I saw. You were great. Oh, I was pretty pissed. I was. Thank you, but I, I mean, it was. Uh, I I know people are you know spending their money to to come to the shows, so. Uh, and, and they work hard for their money. So I, you want to give them a great night out. You like, I do take pride in, in that. And even when I'm trying to work stuff out, you know, it, 
I try to cushion it enough so it's not just a mess. I mean, sometimes if, if I'm in the city, I will I will throw too much new shit out there just because I, I need to get to it. But uh, yeah, I was pretty upset with that venue, <laughs> to be honest. Remember the best vacation you've ever taken? Make your next one even better with Get Your Guide. With Get Your Guide, you can book over 100,000 unforgettable experiences in the U.S. and around the world. Want to see the Grand Canyon from a helicopter? They got you. Watching a wrestling match in Mexico City? No problem. Or how about a guided tour of Rome's ancient ruins? Wherever you're going, whatever you're into, book your next travel experience at getyourguide.com. I don't know if you're a perfectionist or not. Your word choices seem surgical, as they are with many of the best comedians. When you name clubs the way you do, is there a funnier name than Magoobies or whatever it is that you just said? Like, like, can I beat if I if I tried to nominate something to beat the name of the club that would make you feel uh, uh, most insecure about? I you wouldn't believe this, but I performed at Magoobies. Yeah, geez, is there? You've got a bunch of them. Like goobies. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you've had these situations where you end up in. Uh, I I would have assumed that you were noticing all of these clubs and the, that it's one is crackers and that crackers was rough. That <laughs> that was a rough one. Yeah, I remember. Uh, oh, I had a fucking rough New Year's there. I did New Year's. I did it a couple times, maybe three times, and it was a. Uh, it's funny, some of these clubs, you're like, I will never be back. And then you're looking at your calendar for the next year, you're like, hey, can you get me another weekend there? I'm, uh, I'm kind of, it's kind of sparse here. You, uh, you must be someone who... Rooster T. Feathers, that is a, that's a bad name, too. <laughs> I opened for Mark Marin there when I was like, it was like probably 2010 or something. And uh, yeah, Marin is... I love Mark Marin, but he definitely finds he can find your insecurity too in a way. I remember he gave me shit that weekend. He was like, "You don't mention that you're Jewish on stage." And I was like, uh, "I guess I didn't." And he goes, "You're a hide the Jew." That's what he called me at the end of the weekend, and I was like, "Oh no!" And then I saw him years later, and, and I'm cool with Mark now for sure. I like Mark a lot, but uh, I saw him years later at the Montreal Comedy Festival, and he's like, "Where do I know you from?" And I was like. I uh, I opened for you and you you called me a hide the Jew and he's like oh yeah and uh, and I said well tonight I opened on a Jew joke and he goes I got to you <laughs> he can take and credit. he did he, he did. can take he got credit me. for your success you're talking about the legends and you're talking about some people that you're clearly awed by you've been around long enough though that I assume that now young comics are coming to you and treating you with similar uh, respect. Uh, how, how do you receive that? Like, are you, because you don't, I, I don't know you, but you're, you don't seem great at receiving praise. It's hard to, it's hard to receive praise. Cause, uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I guess we're not comics. A lot of time we aren't great at that. It's, uh, I think we're almost like trained to like, just like shoot, like be like, whatever, you know, it's like, as I said, I, I can't stand award shows. I can't stand like, I mean, is there anything more horrible than picturing Sally Field? You like me. You really like me. It's like that's every that's like the antithesis of everything we stand for mm-hmm. is is just like believing. I think the the life of a comedian is just too mercurial to ever even like let it in. You just don't ever think it's going to go well long enough. 
And uh, but also, I guess the highest value of praise that you are willing to accept is laughter. It's like it's the cleanest one. It's the only form. It's not only your economy. It's the one that you're chasing all the time is laughter. That one's pure. You can't even help it. I made you laugh. That's what I do. That's what I'm good at. That's a good point. But I think even laughter, if you're trying enough new jokes, that'll be gone in what, 45 seconds. One joke will kill and the next won't. I mean, so I mean. You, I'll believe the joke is funny, but to believe, I'll never be like, I'm great. I'll be like, that's a good joke. That one's really hitting. So it's almost, it's easier for me to, if someone's like, man, I love, I love that joke. I, mean, I can, I can take that a little more easily than I can. Like, you're great. That's harder to take in. Well, let me ask you this because I am somebody, a lot of people look at what I get to do for a living and it's a great deal of fun. I struggle generally with joy because there's something about ambition that makes you keep sort of chasing and you can forget to just sort of sit gratefully and be a person just be joyful and yeah. i don't know how do you do with joy because your act doesn't have a lot of joy in it <laughs> <laughs> damn that's a good question um yeah i don't know my therapist said that to me once i was like man i don't it just doesn't like i don't feel even when i get like a special or something or anything they call you up i'm like well he's like well how do you react when the knicks win i'm like that's a good point i get pretty happy <laughs> i don't know it's all misplaced you know i i think uh with comedy a lot of the time the stuff you get is cool but a lot of the time like i'm just in it too much to see the big like people are like oh you did that that's so cool and i'm like oh yeah it is cool um but yeah it's it's you're just in it a lot so when you get a special a lot of the time you're like you're not like oh my god i got a special you're like yeah motherfucker i've been doing this i've been working hard so i i don't uh you find a healthy balance between you don't want like praise that feels maybe insincere or, but you also don't want to be, you know, you're competent and you look around and you're like, well, yeah, enough, enough people have gotten this. I could, I could do that. You know, I'm not sure that answers my question about how you do <laughs> joy? with joy though. Like, do you often, I would imagine it would be wildly moving to arrive at whatever you viewed as the dream success, whether it's a theater or something, you're making, you're killing, roaring laughter all over the place. I would, that would seem from afar, I would want that. That seems joyous. You worked hard enough for it. I think for me, there's a difference between like joy and just being grateful. And I'm, I'm very grateful. Like I, I do look at that. Like, dude, we were on a tour bus last year for the first time in my career. And like, we're going from city to city on a bus. We're waking up. We're going to the rec center. We're playing basketball. We're getting breakfast, having our coffee. We're writing jokes, doing the show. Just repeat. Every every day you wake up in a new city for like 14 straight days. And we did that a couple of times. I was like, I love that. That's that can be synonymous, though. Gratitude. If you're overwhelmed with gratitude, that's going to feel like joy, even if you don't express it. Yeah. I, so to answer your question, yeah, I... I I guess I just was like, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, we're doing stuff like, this is how I want to do it. We're on a tour bus. We're watching a film noir from the 40s. I'm getting wine drunk. And uh, I was like, this is this You're with cool. people you want to be with. I'm with a, a circle who I love. Like, I genuinely love these people. So that's everything. And I, and I see, like, it's cool. I was out with Adam Sandler for a bunch of dates. Uh, and I was like, well, he's doing what I'm doing, but just at a much higher level. Like, it's a it's a bigger production. It's... it's uh, 
but he does exactly what I do. He's like, let's play basketball. Let's go to this restaurant. I'm like, oh, this is what we do on the road. So it's cool to see that like, well, you get to not grow up. It's got to feel like when you were, you had three roommates and you were coming up hungry. Like if you get to have so much success that you get to share it with your friends, you're traveling the world and you're doing exactly what you want. That should be joy. Like that's, that sounds like it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, I get, you met Gary Veter, who's like one of my best friends since we started. We were open micers together. So I remember me, first time I met him was at a, a taco a taco stand open mic and he cursed me out because i wasn't paying attention because you every comic breaks at some point it, you know if you're doing enough open mics you just lose your temper and i wasn't even mad at it i was like yeah i get it like i was so he saw me not paying attention looking at my notes and he goes this fucking asshole's not paying attention and i looked up and i was like oh yeah sorry like i i wasn't mad because I, I remember seeing him even then gary had really funny jokes he's very dry and, and it was a type of stuff that connected with me like i Gary loves like, like airplane naked gun type of jokes, and we and we make them constantly on the road. We love like those silly, you know, stupid jokes. And uh, I saw him the next night, and Gary goes, uh, "Sorry, I snapped it." You know, I was like, "Totally get." It. Like even then, I was like, I "Totally understand." Um, and years later, we're still on. The, like all my like Mark Norman was my. We were open micers together. These are all, and and you know, we do a podcast now. He's one of my best friends. I mean. Uh, all these guys I knew from when we were kids that, you know, they're, I was very fortunate to be surrounded by driven people who were supportive. Like definitely when I get something, they were happy when they got something, I was happy. I think not all fields are like that. I think I well, would think comedy is notoriously competitive, right? Like it is and it isn't. I mean, I think, you know, I would think like something like acting has got to be more competitive because you're like, well, there's only one role. And we're all vying for it. We're stand-up. There's a lot of room. And now we do each other's podcasts and, and we help each other. And it, it is much easier. Back in the day, I think, yeah, you'd get bummed when they'd be like, Comedy Central's doing this many half hours and only these people. Yeah, I, sometimes people would feel on the outside looking in. But I also think, man, in some ways, we're in the best era of comedy ever because I was told I couldn't make a special. And I, I was one of the early comics to be like, I'm going to put it on YouTube. And I remember at the time telling some pretty established comics I was doing that. And they were like, you're making a huge mistake. And to this day, it was the best decision I ever made. That's an interesting vantage point because a lot of people are complaining about the state of comedy or the lack of freedom. And you're saying, no, there's kind of more opportunity than there's ever been all over the place. You just got to be a really good comic. The lack of freedom, I, I don't know what they're talking about. Is it like what we can and can't say? I feel like a lot of the time the people who are complaining about like what we can and can't say, it's like... <laughs> it's like you said it i think some people think freedom of speech doesn't deserve criticism and like the fact that comics are under fire or getting criticized is actually a, a point that people are taking it seriously as a form of entertainment i mean that's what people did to tarantino that's what people do to spike lee right so an art you might say if you were the interviewer <laughs> instead of the guy who doesn't want it to be called an art well it's, it's good for comedy it is look comedians we get annoyed when we're criticized, but uh, I think you kind of just got to get it. Look, it is what it is. When people are going to not like your comedy, we're protective over it. It's our comedy, but it's it's not the worst thing that, that comedy specials are in Rotten Tomatoes now. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. 
Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You mentioned uh, going into therapy. Do Can you share like what led you to that kind of introspection? Uh, to go to therapy? Yeah, to craving understanding yourself better, which I, I swear by therapy to anybody who will listen, just because if I can give somebody who's an expert on human behavior a toolbox of my vulnerabilities and my insecurities so that they can then help me figure out how to forgive myself for being too hard on myself, I would like some help with that. Um, I guess... I was drinking a lot and I was just waking up a lot in the morning just like I fucking hate myself I just felt that a lot and my friend Rachel Feinstein who is a hilarious comic she she's like a like a sister to me and uh, she was like you should see the therapist a lot of comedians see Alan and uh, and I did and he's great he, he he really helped with my life view I was I was so much more depressed when I started seeing him and I don't think therapy's for everybody but for me it certainly was I mean it it uh, it made me examine patterns in my life that i couldn't stop reliving that maybe were harmful to me same yeah you have, are you in therapy now yeah yeah i've been for a long time uh you know i had i had a trauma that sort of sent me there uh but it doesn't matter how you get there to ask for help why did you hate yourself i don't know i think just uh i don't know i just kept drinking i think i'm thinking when you're a young comic you're like, well, I'm not getting paid enough, so I'll just take advantage of the open bar, not realizing that this is bad for you, this stuff. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, that you're self-medicating because you don't know yourself well enough to know that you're self-medicating or why you're self-medicating. Or or it can just be fun. It could just be enjoyable, and then you feel shitty in the morning. You feel shitty every morning because you've had too much to drink. It was a combo. Like I wasn't like... I it's also a depressant. Alcohol is also a depressant. That was a big part of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was never like, the, I think the brooding drunk, I think I'm a fun drinker. That's part of the problem is why like, I, I do enjoy alcohol, I, but now I enjoy it in a way that's much more like I'll have two and I'll, ch you know, like, I'm much better about it. Uh, yeah, I think it was a bad cycle and you're, uh, as you said, we're like grown up adults so it's hard to grown up children yeah grown up, like, little kids children, no you yeah. get to i mean you guys what i love about the innocence of comedy is that like you guys when you mention adam sandler playing basketball at 50 you see him walking through new york with a jar of pickles i'm like that's not an adult <laughs> like that is that, that is a guy who has not yet grown up and uh, hasn't had to and god bless him like if you can be happy living forever young and laughing like shit that's great for everybody that's great if you can be happy about it yeah well you know, we we can kind of get away with it, and that's and I think Seinfeld was the one where we said comedians, whatever, however long you've been doing comedy, that's your actual age. So we're, you know, that's funny. And I think there's some truth to that. Like, just someone would be like, "I've been doing it nine years." To Jerry, he's like, "You're you're a baby, you're a child." But um, <laughs> we, yeah, we are children. So it's hard when someone's like. Well, it's Wednesday. You can you can go out and drink, and you're like, I was like, oh yeah, I guess I can. I don't have anything I have to do tomorrow, so yeah, I think you just get in a bad cycle. But uh, I mean, yeah, it's hard to break for sure. What are the patterns? Because I've seen a lot of my family stuff come open in uh, therapy that I had not. I just was totally blind to blind spots, places where I was repeating the behavior of my parents and how they loved each other. And I didn't even realize I was doing it. Like, what were some of the patterns that were shown to you that you were like, oh, that's illuminating? Well, a big one was choosing women who are emotionally unavailable. So I think uh, 
I probably, in retrospect, I probably wasn't ready to be in a relationship either because uh, with how hard I'm doing the roads, so I'm like, I'll just pick a woman who's like always out of reach. I've like, I don't know what it was. I was like, I always loved like those film noirs growing up where the woman would like kind of turn on you or something. So I was like, ah, oh, there's something romantic about a woman that's going to fuck me over. I don't know. But uh, I'll like, I'll pick a femme fatale. Uh, like the Knicks, just like the Knicks. That's what you did with like your Knicks, sports allegiance. But just like, yeah, but the Knicks are now, they're turning around, baby. I love it. But, uh, you know, oh, we are. Don't give me that. We're crushing right now. 11 and 2 in our last 13. Since OG, we're crushing. But uh, I love, uh, yeah, I love the idea that, like, a lot of my favorite movies, like Double Indemnity, where, like, the, the, the woman would, like, kind of dick you over. And there was something kind of fun about that. And, and I just... I don't think I had the bandwidth to handle anything real. So to me, that was like a fun, romantic. But you were always getting hurt too, right? If they're totally. not, if they're not available, like what are you doing? It's really self-destructive. Yeah, I probably didn't need therapy. I just need to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna pay better attention instead to this. of paying a ther therapist. How about I just pay attention? That's all I had to do. You could have saved the same money you did on your manager if you'd just been. But that's the nature of blind spots, right? Like to me, one of the great things about therapy is just sort of like. Oh, I do. Really? I do that. And just having the light shown to you, like it's, it's sort of one of the points, I think. Yeah, yeah it was. And he was, he's just a, such a smart guy, Alan. Like I could bring up any reference and he would get it. It'd be like a music reference, a movie reference, or like a history reference. He'd be like, he would just have like a great comment. I'd be like, oh, this guy just knows everything. It'd and you, you got to pick the right one, right? It's It's really important to have the right therapist. Like, I wouldn't advise it for anybody. You've got to have the one that you can connect with so that the intimacies don't feel like you're giving them something that uh, you don't want judged. That's true. I will also say therapists, like, there are some great ones. Some of them are the craziest people I've ever met. Like, I get assaulted by a therapist in Vermont. A guy broke a pint glass over my head. Turned out to be a therapist. He, he was in a blackout. I have an ex of mine who's a therapist, and she's, like, insane. I mean, they're, they're not so many people are like, you're a therapist? Like, your life is in shambles. They, some of them should have to show proof that their life is going your life okay. life is not in shambles. Yeah. Well, this guy committed a felony on me. I'm like, you fucking attacked me. Um, he's not a therapist anymore, but they were like, do you want to come back to Vermont to testify? I'm like, no, <laughs> you think I want to keep reliving this? Uh, you, uh, you discovered what about now that you've gone through it, you'd go on a, uh, excuse me, uh, unavailable women. What have you learned about loving yourself better and finding love and what love is supposed to look like? And I'm saying this as someone, if this is invasive, I, I got to 50 years old before I had like my entire worldview turned upside down by just loving a woman in a way that forced me to examine some of the things that I thought were right that, that were not right. Yeah. Well, it, it, look, it was relationships. It wasn't just relationships for me. It was also like I had issues, with, like unresolved issues with a, a biological father who was out of my life. And I, I had anger. To, I was trying to maybe see if I could handle a relationship with him in any way. And, and I couldn't. I just like I think it just didn't really work for me. And I think there were obvious connections between him and the women I would choose. It was like he was kind of a narcissist. He was it was kind of all about him. Uh, <laughs> I should have picked up on that when he left. <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty good hint, but uh, and with a note, right? Just left, left with just a he note. He left a note in a safety deposit box. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, look, he, he had, in his defense, he had been through a lot. His other wife had just passed from cancer. He had a, he had a family. Look, it, it, life's complicated. You get older and you, and you, but I, but also like you also can only handle what you could handle. And I have a great dad who raised me. I love my dad. So, um, you know, uh, you have to work through things. And look, I was in a blended family. As I said, there's family dynamics that you don't pick up on and I just think like therapy also it like helps you forgive other people. It helps you forgive yourself, and and also lets you realize like what do I need to confront in my life? Who do I need to have a talk with? And I think uh, the only problem is like I used to do a joke about this, but when you're dating someone who's in therapy and you're both in therapy, it's like the fights take ninety hours. Like every argument's like I hear you and I appreciate where you're coming from, and I'm like, all right, Jesus Christ, it's brutal. Uh, so that's the hard part, but. Uh, I do think there's there's definitely good will come out of it. It's not for every. I had a guy and my parents sent me to a therapist. I went to Tulane for like a semester, literally during Katrina, and uh, and I uh, wow. I know it's not a good decision in retrospect. I love New Orleans. It's such a cool city, but uh, it's just not. I don't operate at the southern speed. I'm a city kid. I need the, the constant stimulation, and they're just so chill in New Orleans. That's part of what makes it great. But it's just hard. I love to visit. I couldn't live there, but um, yeah, I saw a therapist there who was really funny, but he would like roast me. That was his style of therapy. And I remember at one point he was like, I was talking about my biological father, and he goes, you and mommy against the world. I was like, what the fuck? The hell is this? <laughs> This is not helping. <laughs> and I sent my friend to him once. I was like, oh, you have all these problems. You should see this guy. And he was like, that guy's a fucking dickhead. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess he is. Like, you don't, I didn't, right. It's like when you're young and you don't know what a relationship is. I had never been in therapy. I didn't know what therapy was. I was like, yeah, I guess they just roast you. What a mind fuck, though, because I don't know how old you were when your biological father left. But what a mind fuck to realize that as a man who is straight, you are choosing women that are recreating creating the pattern of trying to find the relationship with your biological father like to, that you're not that l the way love looks for you it's not something with your mother it's right. it's your you're doing something that's unhealthy trying for you trying to fuck my dad <laughs> yeah. a literal mind fuck well you know what's crazy too is um I think it's also like you go to therapy and they say all these things about you and you're like, oh my God. And then you realize there's like, there's like eight types of people that we're, you're not that unique. I thought no, it was six. Six maybe. Yeah. We're not that interesting. Everyone's got <laughs> shit and, and, and everyone's got like a, an area they missed as a child, hopefully, you know, but you grow up and you're like, oh yeah, I just got to fix this. It's, it's almost, I look at therapy almost like maintenance. I'll go back every once in a while. I don't go every week anymore, but like. It is like maintenance. I need to like, all right, I got to fix this, you know? Are you of the agreement that a lot of people, a lot of comedians, comedy comes from pain? It doesn't have to. I, I, I think we romanticize that. I think when, when look, what are some of the most popular bits of all time? Richard Pryor lighting himself on fire freebase, and it's, he made that hilarious. And that's cool, but it doesn't have to come from pain. I mean, as I just said, Naked Gun and Airplane are two of the funniest movies ever. It's not like it's not like that came from like a brooding writer. Like, oh fuck, this no uh, <laughs> Leslie Nielsen. He says this here. You know, it's no. I mean, Billy Madison is like the silliest. Like some of my Rodney. I mean, look, I think Rodney Dangerfield was a pretty unhappy guy. But like, Back to School is like a 
It's such a fun movie. Oh, but you have range, though. You're not whoopee cushions. Like, one of the reasons I admire your comedy so much is because you can, like, there's no knowing when you're going to go from silly to smart, and both of them are going to be funny. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I just don't think it has, I think people romanticize, like, you have to be miserable to be a comedian. I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of comedians happen to be, you know, coming from a dark place, but, like, so does, how many people do you know that are, where you're like, oh, I didn't know that because they're just quiet but comedians have a microphone but then you find out a guy you you, you don't know a guy is depressed i think there was a quote in dangerfield's book one of his friends would always say the only normal people are the ones you don't know very well and it's like i think it was joe ansis who would always say that but it's like yeah that's true some guy is maybe got a, a dark uh he's got a darkness to him and you, and you just don't know but comedians we talk about it. our job is to talk about I mean, not every comic is confessional, and, and that's not their style, but if that's your style, you're like, oh, that guy's fucked up. Like, people loved that Louie would talk about this almost, like, fucked up voice in his head, and you'd be like, well, there's, like, a darkness here. I think people connect it to that. Or same with, like, a guy like Bill Burr. I have a thousand questions, uh, because you must have so many pearls with these men and women that you're talking to who have such comedy wisdom that all of them are imparting on you. You must have a long list of just things you've learned from all of these comedy legends. Uh, we'll save that for the next time that I hope I get to talk oh, to we'll you. Oh, we'll definitely do it again. Uh, again, uh, but I will leave you with this, because... Uh, one of the great disappointments in my professional life is that someone like you isn't hosting a sports comedy show, which you have done. You've done it. You did it for a couple of years. You love sports. I don't understand why sports doesn't have more funny in it. Why sports analysis, sports content. Like if I gave you a sports show and allowed you to talk sports with some people you like for 30 minutes, you would do an amazing funny sports show just following your curiosities i thought about it i did a podcast with julian edelman for a minute and i love julian he's still my boy but uh you know we couldn't make season two work because we're both he has to be in la and i'm on the road too hard and uh I, yeah it's it's an idea i had once i couldn't do that season, i thought about um doing like a live talk show thing where i'd have athlete guests on a lot because i think some of them are great i think some of them take themselves pretty seriously like you know for every blake griffin there's there's like a dude here like hey could i fuck with james harden you well, know you, you, no but the whole self-seriousness of sports to me i've always wanted a comedian to come in and puncture it i was disappointed that jay moore didn't work as a late night show on espn because i'm like yeah that like and it's hard to work within the confines of the corporation of disney when you're jay moore oh, god yeah for anyone yeah it's, i mean you were there i mean it's like it's a tough gig but i feel like you can navigate it you were at msg for a while doing something yeah. like that right oh man they would give me insane guests uh <laughs> it was hilarious it would just be like my friends they'd be like we gotta i mean now some of the comics on are famous but i mean i mean yeah some episodes i'd be like today we have a uh, with pete davidson and action bronson and people would be like my friends would be like who like why do you have a better lineup than fallon tonight you know what i mean it's like they get me crazy guests because uh, you know everyone wants to be on good side with msg and uh but it couldn't be funny because of the self-seriousness of like you need you need other comedian you need the the athlete or whomever to be in on the joke you need it to be a panel you know what i think simmons had the right idea with his hbo show it just didn't really work but uh i think the idea of like a panel is what you need to do because you need a funny guy like even joe buck's show that i know had like got 
you know, Artie Lang destroyed it Artie right Lang. out of the box. And Joe Buck is among among our peers who do this. Joe Buck is legitimately funny, yeah. confident in a way that he could pull that off, and it got destroyed in five minutes and ruined yeah. it for everybody else because it got because Artie Lang came and pissed on it. And I love Artie, but yeah, he definitely <laughs> destroyed that. He but, destroyed uh, it. But I think you need that format where you need funny people to like. You need the athletes for their insight. And for their stories, like, and then you need, because we'll, we would do that show sometimes with Julian, and, like, the the episode was very athlete-dependent, as I'm sure you know. Like, you get, sometimes you get, you're like, man, Gilbert Arenas will say anything. He'll be a great guest. But then you'll get someone who's just a little bit more stiff. I wouldn't have thought of pairing you with Edelman. You might have brought him out more than most, but I yeah. didn't see, you know, I didn't see Edelman's wacky personality. He's got plenty, more than Wes Welker. But I'm yeah. just saying, like, if I would have paired you with somebody, that wouldn't have been, you know, one of my first choices. I love Julian. Yeah, he, I mean, he's a fun guy. And he's, I mean, dude, I remember, like, He's a dude I could throw back beers with and stuff and just like, you know, really, yeah, I really, yeah, I feel like we connected. I think he's a great guy. Well, that's what's important. I'm not saying he's not a great guy. I'm just yeah. talking about whatever you're going to be doing as a comedy duo, uh, whatever it is you're going to be doing as a sports show, that you need somebody who gets all the rhythms of how you make your comedy. Yeah, I think, I think it would have worked if we had a little more time. Uh, but yeah, I, sports talk shows are tough. I just think like, shit, man, if Norm McDonald can't make it work, right? I mean, I thought his show was funny. I, it was. I just, I think it's very, I think you're also cutting out and all. It's not like sports. It's a sports show. So you're like, all right, I'm losing a lot of women out of the gate with this concept, right? As opposed to like, I'm working on making a sitcom right now. So I hope I can, I can sell that. I'm working on pitching that in, in a couple months. But uh, I think, I think that'll be a good show. What do you have to promote as we get you out of here? Because I will tell the audience again, his new Netflix special, Same Time Tomorrow, is currently screaming, uh, streaming, excuse me, not not screaming, it's usually not screaming, <laughs> but you can see him all over the world and he's touring. What else do I need to tell the people about where it is they can find you? I got a podcast with Mark Norman, We Might Be Drunk. Uh, we get we get fun guests on there. We uh, I'm on the road constantly. I think coming up, I got like Omaha, Dallas, Irvine, Oklahoma City. Uh, the website's name, the yeah, web samarell.com slash shows and, and, and March, uh, early March, I'm taping a new special with the Wilbur in Boston and that, and that'll be, uh, I think on Amazon that one. So that'll be, that'll be a fun one. So I'm pumped. Uh, thank you for coming through. I'm pumped that you, uh, did. And I hope that we can yeah, have you on hi, again. Say hi when you come by. Uh, yes, I'm going to come by to see you, uh, this, uh, next time we'll do it with more laughter. I know, uh, <laughs> I, I know I came off. You now did, I, I sound like I fucking bombed. No, 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 you did not bomb, <laughs> but I started in exactly the way that I'm guessing that you would want every interview to not ever start, which is here he is. He's hilarious. He's going to be so funny. Uh, that's an amateur mistake by me. I appreciate that you carried me the rest of the way. That was fun. Yeah, this is great. Thank you, sir. Thank you. A lot has changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Man, we was just watching Celtics versus Nuggets last night, and the catalyst to the party, the vibe, the vibe changer, the mood increaser, was the Miller Lite cooler in the middle of the living room. Salute to Miller Lite, man. And when you're out having a great time, oh my goodness, you want to reach for a beer that's reliable. And I cannot name, think of, or even ponder a more reliable beer than Miller Lite. Can you dig it? 
Times change, but you can always enjoy the great taste of Miller Lite. Hmm. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash beach. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Yiddick.